Well, good evening, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Shine Bright Like the Firmament podcast. I'm your host, Madeline Shuffley. And with me today, I have my friend, Thomas Salerno. How are you, Thomas? I'm great, Madeline. How, how have you been? Not too bad. Just getting into the pre-semester swing of things with my job. So it's been a little wild. How about yourself? Yeah, the, things have been good. I've been keeping busy myself. I'm actually, uh, this is a science podcast. And so I've actually been writing some new articles about science and faith recently. So I'm Woo-hoo. really excited about that. And to like, uh, yeah, continue delving into these awesome topics. Yeah. And we love science plus faith things here on the podcast. So I'm sure your articles will be of interest to my listeners and I'll have to link them in my show notes when I actually release this. But in any case, for my listeners who don't know who you are, Why not you introduce yourself to the audience? Sure. So I'm Thomas Salerno. I'm currently a freelance writer, editor, and podcaster. But for about eight years, I worked in the fields of paleontology and anthropology in academic and museum settings. I have a Bachelor of Arts in Anthropology from the State University of New York at Stony Brook. Nice. And I worked at the American Museum of natural history in New York City, both as a volunteer uh, fossil preparator in their vertebrate paleontology lab, and then later as a paid intern in the biological anthropology lab. And then COVID came and turned (laughs) everything upside down. As it Um, does. As it does. But since then, I've been, I've found a great new career as a freelance writer and podcaster, which I've really been enjoying. But I like to keep in touch with that world of science, especially paleontology, which was my first love growing up. Like a lot of, like a lot of people, I had a childhood obsession with dinosaurs. Me too. Yeah, kind (laughs) of never really faded as I grew up. And so I I like to keep in touch and I, with that field, and I I hope to write more about it in the future. Yeah. Um, I have kind of a project that I'm working towards, but I can't, I can't say much about it now because it hasn't been published yet. Maybe it'll uh, be published by the time that I release this. And if it does, I will 100% plug it in my show notes for you. Yeah. Yeah. Like hopefully like it's a book length project, but I don't think it'll be published for at least another year or so. It's in the, yeah, it's in the middle of revisions right now, but yeah, but it, but it has to do with science and particularly paleontology and the faith. Um, Yes. So yes, actually what I can say is that it is about a figure who's one of my favorite people in the history of science. And that is Nicholas Steno. I've actually heard of him. Yes, and you, and you might have because he is basically in the first few pages of every intro to geology textbook you've ever read or seen <laughs> because he enumerated what's now called Steno's Principles, which yeah. is basically the basic principles of stratigraphy in terms of how rock layers are laid down yeah. and become petrified. He kind of laid the foundations for both geology and paleontology in his abstract uh, De Solido or On Solids, where yeah. he kind of put forth the idea idea that oh these weird rocks that kind of look like animal parts that come out of the ground may that may <laughs> actually be what they were are the petrified remains of once living organisms yeah and so i've i'm writing a bit about his life and his story That's and i'm awesome. very i'm very eager to share that with the world soon i will but, need to read that when it comes out 
So the reason I know about him, and I might have heard of him from some geology-related things I've read, Mm. but back around my birthday, I did a special episode about 25 Catholic scientists people should know for my 25th. And one of the guys that I gave a little spotlight to was... Nicholas Steno. Yeah. Oh, that's great. He's he m- more people need to know about him. Yeah. Because, you know, and he has an interesting life. He was a, a convert from Lutheranism. He was born in Denmark. Before he was into geology, he was actually an anatomist, which is an <laughs> which is another interesting connection to me because I got my start working in paleontology as actually part of an anatomy department at uh, the State University of New York. Yeah, a lot of paleontologists teach in anatomy departments. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, because they they know a lot about, especially vertebrate anatomy. Oh, yeah. And, And so this anatomy department at the State University of New York at Stony Brook had, at that time, a vertebrate paleontology lab. And that's where I got my start as a student volunteer and then later a paid student intern. And yeah, so there's that connection with anatomy. He ended up being hired by the famous Medici family in Florence. I, I mean, they had a, a lot of money back in the day. and Yeah, and he was basically their court scientist. And he developed an interest in fossils because he was asked to dissect a great white shark that had been caught (laughs) and sent to the Duke of Florence's court as kind of like, oh, here's this new curiosity. And Steno basically notices, hey, the teeth of this shark look just like those weird rocks that people wear as amulets that they call (laughs) tongue stones and that people believed back then they had curative properties. And Steno did this exhaustive kind of side-by-side comparison. And he's like, no, wait, I think these rocks are actually petrified shark's teeth. How did they get in the ground? And so he starts, that's where he starts developing his theories about how sedimentary rock is laid down and formed. And he's just got such an incredible story. He ends up converting around the same time. He ends up converting to Catholicism. He joins the priesthood. Uh, He ends up becoming a bishop, lives a very holy life, but he has that bad habit of getting run out of town, either by angry mobs of Protestants or angry mobs of Catholics who don't <laughs> like the fact that he was against certain local corrupt practices yeah. in the church. So he has a habit of getting run out of town. He ends up dying of a stomach condition. At, and I forget exactly how old he was. I think he was around 60 years old, but don't Which quote me Which is a respectable age for back then. Yeah, but he's got such a great life. And yeah. I love that he was... He was fascinated and interested with many things. It kind of goes against the grain today of where, especially in the sciences, there's this hyper focus yeah. on specialization. And I mean, he he was literally a Renaissance man. You know, he was at that time and just loved everything. And yeah, I, I really think people need to, to know more about him. And that's why I'm excited to work on this current project. But yeah, yeah. but th- thanks for having me on here so we yeah. can talk more about paleontology and the faith yeah. and all these awesome yeah. topics. Yeah. And also, I think it's also really cool that you brought him up because he is actually a blessed too. So yes. Like, blessed and, Nicholas Steno. Yeah. And so he not only was he a badass in paleontology and stuff, you know, the fact that he's a blessing means he was a badass in the faith. So like, oh, yeah, he, he was known for his not love that. Yeah, he, he was known for his ascetical practices. He actually gave away his bishop's cross and his uh, his bishop's ring gave the money to the poor. He was known to to sleep on the floor, do a lot of ascetical practices. You know, he was just known as a holy figure. And it, it's funny, he was beatified the year I was born in 1988. 
So no that, way. Is a, that is another connection between us. So as soon as when I learned about him back in college, I've always had a fondness for him. I don't so, blame you. It's yeah. kind of for similar reasons. I have somewhat of a fondness for, I'm going to mess up this name because it's from French and it's a Belgian dude, but Georgia Lamatra. Yeah. For the same reasons, I have a bit of a fascination with him. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so some cool science peeps there. But speaking of back when you were born and back in the day, I'm really curious, are you from New York? And how did you get interested in paleontology and geology in the first place? Yeah, so I'm uh, born and raised here on Long Island, which is about an hour's train ride from New York City. Mm -hmm. And so my family would, we would often take day trips into the city. And one of the things to do was to visit the museums. I really need to credit my mom with passing on a love of dinosaurs to me. She loved dinosaurs as a kid. She showed me all those great old dinosaur movies from the 50s and (laughs) 60s, you know, we we were both big Godzilla fans and watched all oh, that yeah. stuff. I had the great privilege to see Jurassic Park when it came out when I was five years old. That's incredible. That movie knocked me flat. And it's still my favorite movie it's to a good this one. day. It it's a good one. And it it's it's not just a good dinosaur movie, it's just a great movie in yeah. general. It's the way the the way it's shot, the music, every the acting, everything. And it cemented me as a Spielberg fan also for life. <laughs> I mean, and you know, and when I was a kid, my, my other great passion besides dinosaurs was movies. I actually at one point wanted to be a filmmaker. I would take my dad's funny. my dad's old V uh, VHSC camcorder with the, the <laughs> tapes that you would put in and with my Jurassic Park action figures <laughs> create (laughs) or with my star wars action figures create movies in the backyard Uh, all these home movies are lost i don't know what became of them that's a tragedy yeah (laughs) but i i had a lot of fun doing that as a kid but yeah movies and dinosaurs were the things that i was into and so yeah we got to go into the city visit the natural history museum and and i remember museum there too It's amazing. And right when I was growing up, they had finished completely revamping the fossil halls so that now they're done in kind of they did this in the mid 90s. And so it used to be the fossil halls used to be divided by geological era. Yeah, much like at the Field Museum in Chicago. Now they're organized by evolutionary relationships. Interesting. So, and the floor is actually laid out like a cladogram, which for view for listeners who may not know is ba- is essentially kind of a basic family tree, yeah, of life forms based on what they have in features that they have in common. And so you have you have all the dinosaurs together, not just because they live at generally the same time, but you have different dinosaurs placed together in the halls because they all share certain evolutionary novelty, certain, they belong to a certain group or clade. A clade means branch. So that's where you get the idea of a cladogram or a tree diagram. And so the floor is actually laid out that way. And you can go through the whole thing from very primitive life forms, fish and amphibians, all the way up to reptiles and dinosaurs. And finally you get to the mammal halls and everything is laid out as fossil mammals and I just fell in love with that place. It's still my favorite place to go to when I'm in the city and especially having worked there for for many years. It's it to, to me it's just a magical place. And I remember 
<laughs> walking through there. It was basically my Disney World. We never had enough money to go to Disney World when I was a kid. Yeah. But for me, this was the next best thing. And I remember seeing kind of the staff only doors <laughs> when I was a kid and going, Mom, what's what's behind that door? And, you know, and eventually sort of getting to see what was behind the scenes. I worked in the laboratories and collections for Oh gosh, I think it was it was seven years, you yeah. know, but first as a volunteer and then as a paid intern. But it was it was just an amazing one of the highlights of my life and career yeah. so far. And so yeah, that's how I've I've gotten into this topic. When when I went to college, I changed majors a few times, but I ended as up as one settled, does. <laughs> as one does, yeah. Because the thing is paleontology is not a major. So sadly. You, sadly. So you kind of have to choose. Most people take the geology track or the biology track. And then there are usually graduate, sometimes graduate programs in paleontology. Yeah. I'm very terrible at math. <laughs> and so I soon found out that all of the math that's required for geology or biology, physics and chemistry, it's just, it wasn't my forte. thing. I, forte. Not a, yeah, I'm not, I'm not a, uh, a numer, a quant, I don't have a quantitative mind really, but it turns out that the university that I ended up transferring to the State University of New York at Stony Brook on Long Island had a very strong anthropology program. And as part of that program, they had a paleo many classes in paleoanthropology and many professors mm -hmm. who worked in that field. And also they had connections to the nearby hospital, which housed the anatomy department, which had a paleontology lab. So, but and again, anatomy was not a major. So I ended up majoring in anthropology. My concentration was in what was back then called physical anthropology. Mm -hmm. They've since changed the name to biological anthropology. And I took a lot of courses in paleoanthropology, obviously about human evolution, primate fossils, yeah. especially. I did a lot of concentration in that. For a while, I thought of going to graduate school for paleontology, mm -hmm. but the means just weren't there. And the opportunities yeah. weren't there. But several professors encouraged me based on term papers that I had written that I should explore a career perhaps in writing. I had, yeah. as a writer, I had one professor tell me, whatever you do after school, make sure writing is a big part of it. Yeah, And that really inspired me. I thought of Stony Brook also had a very strong science journalism program. Yeah, which that's how I, well, I know about the State University of New York system because mm -hmm. my dad is from New York and most of his family members, they've probably covered every single SUNY school that there is. <laughs> but like a professor of mine told me about the science journalism stuff at SUNY Stony Brook. Yeah. So I had thought of getting my master's in science journalism. In the end, it, it ended so far, it hasn't happened yet. Yeah. But I've managed to, you know, I wouldn't say make a name for myself. Nobody knows who I am, but it's like to, but to have a pretty decent <laughs> career as a freelance writer. I don't write all about science. A lot of what I write about these days is pop culture stuff because yeah. that's my other big passion, science fiction. Which makes a lot of sense because you love movies. Right. Yeah. Because I love movies. I'm on a movie podcast where we discuss both new and old movies. I love that stuff. I love movies. I love television shows. So that it's allowed me to explore my other big passion. And, you know, I like dabbling in science fiction writing myself. It's yeah, it's just fun. Is your because for the for my listeners who don't know either of us very well, I know Thomas 
through a group called Legend Fiction, which is a group a writing group for Orthodox and Catholic writers. And I, of course, know, uh, well, way before I knew that Thomas had a science side, I knew about the writing side. And I'm trying to remember what genre your work in progress is actually in, because I forget. Well, really, it's like which work in progress, because I always have a million of them. Yeah. And I had one that I was working on this summer that was in fantasy. I've that kind of Sword put, and Claw? That was Sword and Claw, yeah, which is a kind of epic fantasy in the classic mold. Yeah. I've sort of put that one aside for now simply because the characters are currently not cooperating with me. Melissa and would I, know a lot about that. <laughs> <laughs> so I think they, they have to sit in a corner and until they want to talk to me again. But yeah, no, I'm currently working on a lot of stuff. I always have a lot of irons in the fire because my, my imagination is that kind, which is kind of like a squirrely imagination. It's always running after the latest thing. Yeah, that was me and my, I had a planetarium budget meeting earlier today. And I think my mind was a lot like that because I have lots of ideas and I wanted to iterate them all. And we certainly didn't get through all of them in the two hours me and the professor I was talking with spent on that meeting. (laughs) (laughs) I would eventually like to incorporate my knowledge of paleontology and anthropology into science fiction in the future, just because there's not a lot of good fiction of that type out there. There really isn't. The good books I could name on one hand, probably, there's obviously the novel Jurassic Park. Oh, yeah. And its sequel, The Lost World. Yeah. There's Arthur Conan Doyle's The Lost World from 1912. There, I think it was 1912 when he wrote that. Um, There is Raptor Red, which Uh if anyone hasn't read Raptor Red... I don't know if it's still in print, but it read it. Because it was written by a paleontologist. Do you know White Fang, the novel yeah. where it's from a yeah, dog's yeah, yeah. point of view? It's like yeah. that, but if it was from a raptor's point of view. So it's almost like, yeah, it's... The dinosaurs White, don't talk the, or anything. It's like the dinosaur version of White Fang. Yes. And it's like the author anticipates... You know how a bigger sci- modern sci-fi name is Andy Weir? Yes. Yeah. He's kind of like the Andy Weir of paleontology in a sense. Or like paleontology inspired books because he wrote that way before, you know, Andy Weir was a thing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Robert T. Bakker is the author of that book. And he was kind of a maverick paleontologist back when he was a grad student in the 60s. A lot of his ideas have sort of come into their own these days about dinosaurs being endothermic or what's commonly called warm-blooded, you yeah. know, having a high metabolism, being very active, not being slow and lizard-like, you know, being having more of a bird or mammalian type metabolism and also being very intelligent creatures. And so yeah. his ideas come through in these books in this novel, Raptor Red. It's very good. Also, a recent one that I came across is from this the science fiction writer S.M. Sterling. Yeah. He wrote a book called The Sky People. Yeah. Which is really good. It's set in an alternate timeline where for some reason, which for reasons I won't spoil, dinosaurs populate the planet Venus. <laughs> like Venus is a habitable planet. It's covered by jungle. And it, it's like one of those old pulp science fiction things where there are dinosaurs and cavemen and scantily clad cave women <laughs> and they the main characters are American astronauts 
and Russian cosmonauts and some crazy <laughs> stuff ensues. And it's just a fun book. That I wish does the sound fun. I wish the idea had been mine, frankly. When I read that book, I was like, why didn't I write this? Yeah. <laughs> it was oh my goodness. That and I'm currently working my way through a series that's called Destroyer Men, which is yeah. another alternate history that is set basically this World War II era destroyer and all of its crew gets transported to an alternate timeline where dinosaurs <laughs> never went extinct. And so there are hordes of intelligent of human level intelligent velociraptors. Oh my goodness. As, as well as like <laughs> these lemur type primates who are like the dominant mammalian species. There's also other humans there, including this society where it's, okay, imagine if the conquistadors didn't conquer the Aztecs, but went native and embraced their blood sacrifice religion. And so they're like the, like some of the, the human antagonists. It's really crazy and bonkers. That and sounds I, I like a fun ride, like that. Yeah, it is. And the, but the, the characters are what makes it. You fall in love with, it's got a huge cast but you fall yeah. in love with the characters. A lot of them are very, even though the cast is huge, a lot of the characters are very distinctive. Yeah. And especially on, on the crew of the ship. It's almost like Star Trek in a way where you get to know the different crew members. And It kind of reminds me of kind of how I felt about reading Joe Campbell's work in progress, Cattle Killer, because you just, the things that he does, he just keeps me guessing on what he's doing in the best way. And like you fall in love with the characters. And I've told him many times I didn't expect to like the book but I did. That's the best feeling ever when you don't expect to like something but you just fall in love with the story and especially the characters. I like seeing long series where characters can grow. Yeah. And though the one thing criticism I have of SM Sterling Sterling's The Sky People is that it's one book. And I'm right? like, "No, where's the rest of it?" I'm like, I yeah. want to see more of these characters. I want to see more of these people. But there's such a dearth of dinosaur of good dinosaur fiction. Like there's dinosaur fiction out there but a lot of it is are stinkers and yeah. you know so it's something that since i have some knowledge in this area it would be something i would want to include you i really just need should. to I, thank you i mean i just need to find the right story yeah because as much as i love space science fiction like i read a ton mm -hmm. of it and yeah. I, some of my favorite books of all time are science fiction books seeing some dinosaur and just paleontology inspired fiction would be great it kind of reminded me you would appreciate this but well a work in progress i have does involve dinosaurs but like it oh basically it's set like near future where genetic engineering is much more of a thing and kind of like jurassic park the dinosaurs have kind of been resurrected except right they kind of you said in what was it red raptor or something Red, yeah. Yeah, Raptor Red, where they're kind of like human intelligence level. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it involves the dinosaurs like that instead of the dinosaurs that kind of go a little berserk in Jurassic Park. Right, yeah. Yeah, and it liked the, although I do think the original couple of Jurassic Park movies did a better job of showing them as actual animals and less as monsters. Yeah. I mean, they're still monsters in a way in the first two movies, but they emphasize more that this is what happens to a very intelligent animal when you keep it in a cage. Yeah. You know, like it, it it's like problems they've had at, you know, SeaWorld with the orcas. This is what happens when you keep an animal like this at captivity. Don't expect 
to believe that you can control it, you know? Yeah, it, it almost kind of like sheds light on the idea of, you know, yes, we're made in the image of God, but does that mean we can necessarily play God, especially exactly. for other animals and yeah. ourselves? One no. of my first pieces that I got published, in fact, it was the first piece I ever got published at the Catholic website Word on Fire, which is run by Bishop Barron. Wait, you've had stuff published on there? A lot of stuff. That's yeah. really cool. I have to thank it's because a friend of mine, Matt Becklow, who is one on the publishing team there, we had known each other through t- Twitter. And then we learned we lived in the same town Whoa. and we didn't even know it. So we became friends. We struck up a conversation. We talked about writing because we're both writers. As one and does. <laughs> as one does. And so, you know, he eventually invited me to submit some pieces. You know, my first few didn't get accepted, but eventually the first piece I did get accepted there was about Jurassic Park and about that very thing you brought up. That yeah. Jurassic Park is a modern parable yeah. about playing God, about human hubris. And it's essentially telling the same story as Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Yeah. Just that Dr. Frankenstein is Mr. Hammond in yeah. Jurassic Park and the dinosaurs are his monster. You know, my my favorite, I highlight in the, in the essay that my favorite piece of dialogue from the film is when Hammond is sitting in the dining room eating all the melting ice cream from the fridge yeah. and the paleobotanist, Dr. Sattler comes in and he starts talking about, he just wanted to make Jurassic Park to to bring happiness and, and joy to people <laughs> like he did because he he had this, this sleight of hand magic show that he used to run called the flea circus and you know he wanted to make it like that he said you know creation is an act of sheer will next time it will be flawless he's still thinking about next time he's gonna do this again sattler tells him no this is still the flea circus it's all an illusion hammond says no when we have control again she cuts him off and says you never had control that's the illusion yeah and i'm like that's the that is the point of the movie, the, the idea that he thought he could control nature, control God's creation in such a way to manipulate it to human ends, because it, it's f- fallen humanity does that instead of living in harmony with creation, we try to dominate it yeah. and twist it to our own agenda. And that's the message of the original Jurassic Park. That's why yeah. it's such a great film. And with all the crazy stuff going on today with all these bioethics issues, the movie is more more relevant than it's ever been. Yeah, you're absolutely right because there are different bioethics issues that at least as Catholics, we're in a sense opposed to what modern society is trying to tell us. Mm -hmm. You know, a good example of this is the issue of surrogacy and how it kind of commodifies a lot of things that have to do with reproduction. And plus the idea of control. Humans, I'm not excluded from this at all, but we kind of have a tendency towards self-reliance and we're like, we'll just, you know, like I'll get it done myself. And a little bit of self-reliance is not horrible but when you take it to the extreme and you're like goodbye god i got this you don't need to help me that's when things start to go wrong again like uh jeff goldblum's character the mathematician malcolm says he has his famous line where he says god creates dinosaurs god destroys dinosaurs god creates man man destroys god man creates dinosaurs so obviously obviously mankind doesn't literally destroy god but we've put him in such a 
a man essentially ignores God and acts like God doesn't exist yeah. and then tries to become God doing the very thing God did in the first place, which is create dinosaurs. Yeah, which in no way are we not man in a sense is co-creator with God, especially mm. with the fact that, you know, most obviously that humans can reproduce but that doesn't mean that we can do all the sorts of creation that god can or else we would be god right yeah and how we feel like we have these decisions like you said with surrogacy and other this whole idea of designer babies and stuff like oh, yeah. and, and gene editing that we have the right to go in and mess with these things were we really do we are we even ma mature enough as a species to be doing this oh, you yeah. know and when we're we're taking prerogatives onto ourselves that is not our prerogatives as human beings to decide what's the nature of even being a human being. The whole transhumanist mm -hmm. movement, you yeah. know, wants to completely redefine was it what it is to be a human being, you know, and that's just not our prerogative. Yeah, like it isn't. You know, we have a human nature that we were created by God. It's like they're taking the idea of evolution, but again, thinking that they can control it. Yeah, with transhumanism, that we can control the process of evolution. We can direct it. We can make sure that mankind's next stage, whatever that is, is what we decide. Yeah. And it's like, that's that's the Tower of Babel right exactly. there, which is what I mentioned in the article. That, yeah, it, it's like the Tower of Babel because when God comes down in the story and, and sees the tower being built, he says, we can't let them keep doing this or they'll just do whatever they want to do. And it's not because God is threatened by man in any way. Yeah. It's that he knows this is not good for man this yeah. outlook this this hubris this belief that man can do whatever he chooses and redefine the world and himself in ways that were never meant to be it's not a threat to god it's a threat to man himself and do man doesn't even realize it yeah it's almost it reminds me of the analogy that often gets thrown around with regard to this where you know humans are like the car driving along the side of a mountainside cliff and usually you have guardrails there Mm. And the guardrails are there for a reason, because if you go off that edge, there's danger and you die. Right. And so those guardrails are kind of like God reminding us, you know, hey, like, that's not good for you, how I created you. And yeah, and this is why I love science fiction, because it has the ability to talk about the, the big question. Yeah. I think a lot of science fiction writers today, though, don't recognize that these metaphysical issues are really important. Yeah. And you get in a, a lot of hard sci-fi will end up leaving me feeling kind of cold because it's just like, okay, where is the wonder in this universe? Where yeah. is the sense of the metaphysical? But I think it, science fiction has the ability to talk about these things because there, there were writers like Ray Bradbury who were not mm -hmm. afraid to shy away from the supernatural in their stories. And even some modern science fiction writers do it really well. If any... The great 20th century writer Walter M. Miller Jr. wrote A yeah. Canticle for Leibowitz, which is one of my favorite novels of all time. You yeah. know, and it deals with science, science and faith issues in a way that I've never seen it done better. Yeah. And and even the field that I majored in, anthropology, if we don't get what is anthropology but Greek for the study of man, the study yeah. of human beings. And if we don't get anthropology right, everything yeah. else kind of falls apart. Yeah. You know. 
What you bring up reminds me of two sci-fi things that I have read relatively recently. One published, one that's not. That kind of, I loved how it kind of dealt with things metaphysically. The first being Mark Maker by Mary Jessica Woods, because I... the way that it deals with just how, in a sense, society can, oh, I forget. Have you read this? I don't remember. I haven't. On my Kindle. I have not had the chance to read it yet, but please read I, it. I know won't... some things about it. Yeah. yeah. You won't be disappointed. I'm sure Mary will appreciate you reading it. But I love how it kind of, you have this alien tattoo artist who is super angsty and we love him for it. But he gets caught between these warring factions of his society. And it really brings in a like question, like, what is honor and how do we define what honor is? And right. I loved that. And then the other thing I read, my friend Jared from a different Catholic writers community, he has this work in progress called Eventide. It's the first book in his series called The Orbits of Man. And it kind of deals a little bit with the idea of transhumanism and what souls are and stuff. And mm. I just, I adored it while I was reading it and I would always send him comments on things that I loved and questions I had. And it just really made me think of what does it mean to be human? Right. Yeah. It's such an important question that I think anthropology has become very scientific and very empirical, which is good. Yeah. But I think it's lost a little bit of the philosophical, yeah. which I think is just as important. Although, you know, like n not all have, you know, I've, I've read some anthropology books, then there are some on my list to read because I still read in this topic. Oh, yeah. That I can can see where they're trying to address these questions, still address these questions. But yeah, the they're trying also to have it be a very empirical science, which is important for some of the subfields. But I think yeah. anthropology broadly should all should include holistically the, the whole human being. I mean, it is the study of man. Man. Yeah, absolutely. And it's just that the, the section that of anthropology that I was interested in, in studying was, is man's origins, you yeah. know, and the origins of our family, our closest relatives in general, which is a fascinating subject because we're always learning more about it. Oh, yeah. And we're in sort of a golden age of research in that field. And we're always learning more. That's mm -hmm. I know people who ask me about it, you know, like to give them a brief summary of our knowledge. And I'm like, that's impossible because we're always learning new stuff. And it, it yeah. seems like every year, the tale of human biological origins is being rewritten by a new discovery. Oh, yeah. And I it's swear, such an exciting time, time. Every time I read something that has to do with anthropology, I'm like, whoa, because they always are like, oh, this revolutionizes our understanding of X. I'm like, have I been under a rock for the last year? Well, that's also <laughs> become kind of a trope in anthropology writing to say <laughs> this revolution completely revolutionizes our view of human origins in this way. I mean, I will say that that has become a bit of an overused trope. But what is... <laughs> happening is that we're constantly having to revise in small ways our views based on yeah. new discoveries. And especially with recent genetic mm -hmm. research showing how many of the humanity and its closest relatives are called the hominins. That's yeah. kind of the subfamily, but different hominins such as modern human beings, the group that's commonly referred to as Neanderthals, and other groups. There was a lot of interchange yeah. and interbreeding going on. And th that raises the question of what is homo sapiens Yeah, as a species? Are we to include these close relatives as human? 
or are they still proto-human? There's some metaphysical questions there, which I think will never be answered until the other side, but they're fascinating to think about. And that's another thing that I think should really be included in science fiction, more science fiction about human origins and looking at the the metaphysical questions about it, because it's, it must have been a fascinating time to be alive with all of those peoples and cultures wandering about. Yeah. Oh my goodness, that would be very, very fun. So we talked a lot about the science aspect and we talked about our mutual interest in writing and science fiction books. I wanted to shift gears a little bit to get more about what your faith background has been like and what your faith life has evolved into over the span of your life. Sure. So I'm what they call a cradle Catholic. Mm -hmm. I was born into a Catholic family, baptized, went through religious education, all the sacraments. Mm -hmm. And I've always been pretty close to my faith. For the last couple of years of high school, I actually went to a small private Catholic boarding school in Pennsylvania. Um, These days it's called Gregory the Great Academy. And I was a bit of the odd man out there because I was one of the few people not interested in sports. But besides that, you know, it was I'm grateful I went there because it made me draw even closer to my faith. Back then they used to have the old Tridentine Latin Mass celebrated there. I think today they do the business the Byzantine rite instead. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Or some of our legend fiction friends would really appreciate that. (laughs) Mm. And so like I, although I never became attached to any one particular form of the liturgy, I just love the mass in general. And I found that I'm very attracted to that. I'm very attracted to the rhythm and flow of the liturgy. It's even part of my prayer life in the last, since COVID really, when all the, the sacraments were Locked yeah. down, you you couldn't go to church really. I started getting into the liturgy of the hours. Yeah. Which is great because Word on Fire publishes these very convenient little liturgy of the hours booklets that you can get every month. Yeah. And again, it's the rhythm of the liturgy of the hours that I'm not so good at spontaneous mental prayer. You know, oh, one yeah. of the, I it's envy hard. the I envy those people who say that they talk to Jesus all day. I need that structure. I'm a creature of habit generally. Oh, and I, I feel can... you, Thomas. Yeah, <laughs> good. It's not just me. But in college, I held on to my faith a lot. I did what I could to evangelize. You know, most of my friends yeah. were atheists or agnostic, but especially being in a science major. Yeah, especially that one. I mean, a lot of science majors, or at least when I was growing up, gave me the vibes of atheist or agnostic and because that's kind of how things were portrayed for a long time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's like, but... I never really experienced any hostility from them. In fact, uh, when a lot of people would find out I was a practicing Catholic, they would get curious and ask me questions. And I actually found one of my greatest ways to present the faith to people was the Lord of the Rings, (laughs) which is another one of my favorite things ever, because a lot of people didn't know it was deeply Catholic. Yeah, I mean, you know, I didn't and, know is deeply Catholic until recently. And that was the thing when I was introduced to Lord of the Rings when I was 13, around the times that Peter Jackson movies were coming out. And I, oh, yeah. I devoured those books. I'm still, you know, and I'm, I'm on a, today, I'm on a Lord of the Rings podcast every month. And I admit to being obsessed with 
Tolkien's legendarium, his world that he created. It is pretty but cool. It is I'm starting to appreciate it. It is pretty cool. And it informs a lot of the, the own things that I try to write in probably a fool's errand kind of way, because I could never compete with his writing style. I at mean, all, he's but... he's kind of like a he's like a father of that genre of oh yeah fiction, without a doubt. Especially right. that genre of fantasy. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Everybody else is just footnotes after oh, Tolkien 100%. when it comes to fantasy. You know, like Lewis and Lloyd Alexander, who wrote the Chronicles of Perdane series around the same time, yeah. are the only people who hold candles to him in that genre. There may be a few others who I'm forgetting, and I'm sure Which people makes will sense let me know. But... You know, Tolkien and Lewis were friends. Right, yeah. Exactly. And I, I used to explain use the Lord of the Rings as kind of an evangelization tool. I don't know if it made an impression on anybody, but it was my way of kind of that. And like, you know, I would explain how like, no, I don't see any conflict between yeah. my faith and the science I'm studying. The Catholic Church is very open to yeah. exploring paleontology. I mean, going all the way back to Nicholas Steno, who essentially founded the field. Exactly. You know? Exactly. And, and now we're has no problem with exploring human origins and and all that stuff because there's really nothing that we could discover there that would threaten authentic catholic doctrine yeah, so yeah like, at least i don't know so much with paleontology and anthropology but i know that the church often gets a bad rap particularly with astronomy and physics because of mm -hmm. stuff like the galileo affair and what happened with yeah. copernicus but often if you go back and read between the lines you realize that there are misunderstandings on both sides that oh yeah cause issues huge. in the first place I mean, Galileo would have saved himself a lot of trouble if he did not put the words of his friend, the Pope, in the mouth of a guy called Simplicio, which yeah, I think basically idea. means simpleton. Yeah. So I'm like, why would you do that? But anyway, I mean, in terms of like evolutionary sciences, like paleontology and anthropology, people will bring up the Scopes monkey trial, but that had nothing to do with the Catholic Church. That was mm -hmm. American politics. And, you know, I mean, Pope Pius XII laid it, most of it all out in 1950s encyclical Humani Generis. Ooh. That we are allowed to explore these aspects of human history as long as we acknowledge that God creates out of nothing every single human soul. Yeah. And that our original parents incurred original sin, which has essentially broken human nature ever since. Yeah. As, as long as we acknowledge these, we are given free reign to explore, I guess you could call the pre-Adamite history yeah. of humanity. And again, yeah. pre ideas about pre-Adamite humans predate evolutionary science. Yeah. Catholic thinkers have been thinking about the possibility of humans before Adam for centuries. Yeah. Yeah. And honestly, that like, say the name of the document again. Uh, Humani Generis. Yeah. Humani Generis. It's 1950. Yeah. It sounds like a document that scientists, especially Catholic scientists, should read. Mm hmm. Oh, yeah. It's pretty short. And I think you can find it online on the Vatican's website. Also, I would say um, Fides et Ratio. Faith which, and Reason. Yes. Which I believe is John Paul II or it's Benedict. And I'm I'm confusing both the two of those of them, but... would make sense because I mean Pope Benedict was a rock star theologian and 
well, right. JP two. I mean, they don't call him John Paul the Great for nothing. Nothing. And Benedict actually hosted several conferences on human evolution. That's cool. I actually read a book that was a compilation of all the presentations that were given at that conference. I didn't agree with some of them simply because I felt that some of the theologians and philosophers talking don't know much about human evolution. Yeah. And it showed. And I was like, ooh, like, you not know how science work. And I'm like, but aside from that, they're good books to read just to get different perspectives. Because, you know, like sometimes I found this in the writings of certain contemporary philosophers who try to talk about the topic. They won't get that philosophy is a different way of knowing than empirical science. And empirical science can really only work in a very limited form of knowledge. And a scientist is not going to ask questions like, well, is that really fitting? I'm like, well, in my science, when I put on my scientist hat, I go, well, but what does the empirical evidence say? Exactly. The empirical evidence, it doesn't matter what you subjectively think is fitting or not. Yeah. That's a philosoph- That's a subjective philosophical question. Whereas I'm talking about, but this is what the hard evidence says. And that's what I love about paleontology. You can hold the hard evidence in your hands. Yeah. You know, the fight, it's not like perhaps with physics where you're astronomy, where you're dealing with things that are light years away, or even like when you're, (laughs) you can't really see an atom when you're, you're studying it. Whereas like I can hold, I have held dinosaur fossils that are tens of millions of years old in my hand. And the uncanniness of that never gets old. Yeah. Because you really, once you start, you get almost like vertigo. Once you start (laughs) realizing like this was part of a living, breathing organism that existed a hundred million years ago. That was alive a hundred million years ago. Even that, that we, we call it deep time. That kind of time breaks our human frame of reference. Yeah, I think really like, only God can understand it, you know? Yeah, just like cosmological time skills break our brains too. Uh-huh, exactly. And so, yeah, there's there's a lot of great books out there to read. One that I often recommend to people is Finding Darwin's God. Mm-hmm. It's by, that book changed my life when I was about, oh, I want to say about 14. I had encountered young earth creationism for the first time. <laughs> and it shook my faith. I'll yeah. admit that because I didn't know how to answer it. Exactly. And, you know, I eventually learned it's not really part of the Catholic tradition. It's yeah. more of a fundamentalist Protestant view. But it did shake my faith until I read the book Finding Darwin's God, which is by Kenneth R. Miller, who is a Catholic cell biologist. Ooh. And he picks apart the creationist worldview, not in a a mean or polemical way, but just by facts. And he also critiques the new atheist perspective as well, which is what's great about the book. He just doesn't take aim at misguided religious people. He takes aim at misguided atheists. And he shows that no, contemporary evolutionary biology and the Catholic faith are not in conflict at all. And it was just, it was a life-changing book for me. So I'll always recommend that to people. The list would be huge of stuff, but there's a lot of resources out there. And I would say if anybody interested in dinosaurs specifically, if you want (laughs) to know the current state of the science, watch Apple TV Plus's Prehistoric Planet. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Best dinosaur documentary I've ever seen. I I love it to death. And because it's that represents the state of the science. In fact, it includes some species that I've worked on in the past, which is pretty amazing. 
including some, in the first season, they show some dinosaurs from Madagascar, yeah. which I've worked on some of those files. I have the opportunity to work on those in the past. Yeah. And yeah, it's pretty amazing. That's the, the state of the science, you know, them as, and I'm sure 10 years from now, it'll look hokey and say, you know, because we will have learned so much more. But that show and it, they had a great team of scientific advisors on that show. Yeah. And I think it's it's just spectacular. Oh, my goodness. I love that you mentioned that because me and my dad have been talking about how we we've seen the first season of Prehistoric Planet, but mm. we haven't seen any of the I forget how many seasons. There's we've currently seen. a season two, which I. I'll admit to my shame, I have not seen yet, but I've just, my schedule is yeah. just, of watching things for being on podcasts has just been so full that yeah. I have to make time for, you know, there's stuff I watch in air quotes for work. And then there's stuff I watch for myself. Yeah. And that, that would be one of those things. But yeah, it, it's a great show. Yeah. I need to watch the second season too, but I've been, well, the new season of the science fiction adaptation of Foundation is back. Ooh. And so actually a new episode airs tonight. So when Oh, I, that's cool. Yeah. So when we're done chatting and after I drive to my parents' house, I will be watching that by myself. That's mm. cool because I have yet to see any of that show. I've read the first book when I was in college, but I now I have to watch Foundation because I'm going to be on a sh- podcast reviewing it. Mm. So I, I have to watch the first season because we're going to do that yeah. to catch up and then we're going to review season two. Yeah, because I have not read the book because I found out about the book via the show. Mm-hmm. And from the perspective of someone who has seen the show first, the first season is really cool. And it's an epic of space opera proportions, of course. Yep. Yeah. But I do understand that because of the challenges of adapting the original source material, that there are noticeable changes between the television adaptation and the book, which I'm sure some of it was necessary to do. Yeah. The book has a bunch of time jumps, which would throw people off in a Mm -hmm. show. So I'm sure they've eliminated most of those. But yeah, it's even though I don't currently work in the field of paleontology or anthropology right now, it's something that I enjoy still learning about, still writing about. And I hope to write more in the future, especially from a faith angle. Yeah. About these topics. I just need to find the right way to do that. You know, my steno project is in the oven. Yeah. Right now. And that will come out maybe next year. We'll see. Yeah. But, you know, I'm working on maybe some other ideas yeah. that I can do in that field. It's just. <sighs> I don't know if I'll sit down and really, really tackle a subject like human evolution. It's just, it's too big yeah. for me. But I would like to write maybe some essays, maybe an essay collection in kind of the spirit of like writers like Stephen Jay Gould. Mm-hmm. Or Lauren Isley, mm-hmm. who sort of pioneered, and Lauren Isley was an anthropologist, and he, they kind of pioneered the whole science communication essay style. Yeah. And I would like maybe to do that in the future. Yeah, yeah. And it'll be so fun to read some of those things. And honestly, that brought up for me two fun, quick questions. And the first one is, what is your, in your recent work, what is your favorite thing that you've worked on recently? That's not the Blessed Nicholas Steno project. Okay, yeah, yeah. Favorite thing recently that I've worked on? It would have to be some of the recent articles that I've written for Word on Fire. And I'll have to send you the links to these when we're done, because I did 
this two-parter that was kind of, I looked at it pretty soon after the Dobbs Supreme Court decision on abortion. I wrote a piece looking at it from the perspective of my anthropological background and lamenting that I saw a lot of people in the field really just falling in line behind the pro-abortion position from, I felt, a political doctrine kind of perspective without looking at it from a really holistically anthropological perspective in terms of the nature of man. And then I wrote a follow-up to that that incorporated just not only how beautiful we are as creatures, as man, but that we're part of this amazing universe. I wrote a piece about the web images. This was last year, by the way. And (laughs) when those first images came out, specifically the the cosmic cliffs image. Wait, oh, the pillars of creation? uh, No, this one was called the cosmic cliffs. It was one of the first web images that came out. And that image just blew me away. And it reminded me of that famous, I think it's Carl Sagan, right? Who says we're all stardust. Yeah. Oh, you know, I and love it's that. like, and it's like, so not only are our souls individually crafted by God, but our bodies contain matter that was forged in the furnaces of exploding stars. So even our bodies have this, this dignity to them, you know, this glorious past, in other words, and to that it reminded me of the Psalm, which says we have been gloriously, wonderfully made. I forget. Yeah. It's escaping me which Psalm that is, but I don't remember what Psalm it is either. But those two pieces I'm really proud of they, that I think those came out like a year ago this we're this month we're recording in August yeah and there was that and then re- my most recent piece for word on fire which got a lot of attention it wasn't really connected to science in any way but it was about Bishop Fulton J Sheen yeah um, he did I'm also a history buff and he did a series of radio addresses during World War II before the United States was in the war yeah and when the war was going extremely poorly for the Western democracies and yeah. he essentially it was a call to repentance where he's basically, we're not, a military victory over the Axis powers will mean nothing if the West does not get its act together in terms of morality, yeah. in terms Which of is- God totally prophetic about too. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it's like, you know, not only have we essentially squandered the peace that was built off yeah. the ruins of World War II, but we're in a pretty dangerous time now. Yeah. Where Europe is in, is ablaze again. Yeah. And the United States isn't in it yet. It's not and far th- behind though. Right. And things are very scary. But the point of that essay was that no matter what happens, the ultimate victory of Jesus Christ is assured because he's the Lord of history. Yeah. Which, yeah, we think we're the authors of history, but God is the author of history. Which reminds me of two things. One about, it kind of reminds me of the book of Revelation, how the book of Revelation at first pass seems kind of wild and almost like a acid trip or something. Yeah. (laughs) And, but like, if you read it through the right lens, you really, well, there's multiple lenses through which you can read it to help make sense of things. And in one sense, it kind of, in one lens, it talks about the end times and just the first time I learned about all that, I my mind was just blown. And then the other thing I talked or I thought of is a relatively cool fun fact that I discovered 
but do you happen to know where Venerable Fulton Sheen did his undergraduate studies? Oh, it, it's escaping me now. I think I knew it at one point, but... Well, so he was from Illinois. Yeah. Specifically, I think the Peoria area, which is in the state that I currently live in. And he actually, the university that I work at now used to be a Catholic institution. And when it was a Catholic institution, that was his alma mater. Really? Yeah. It wow. was it was run by the Viatorian order. But I think it fell on hard times in the Depression Mm. era. But I've been thinking lately just kind of how cool it is that I'm walking around the area where... Venerable Fulton Sheen spent time, yeah. you know, decades ago, which is so Yeah, cool. I know that. And it's the same thing when I was working at the museum, knowing that this is where heroes of mine, like uh, 20th century paleontologists like Barnum Brown mm-hmm. and Roy Chapman Andrews lived and worked. It was pretty inspiring just to be in the same place where those, you know, historical figures I had read about since when I was a kid. Yeah. Had worked. It, it, it was great. And before I forget, I almost forgot to mention that, that there is a paleoanthropologist, another paleoanthropologist figure who was a priest. He's, I predict he will never be declared a saint because of some of his controversial metaphysical views. Who is but that's it? Pierre Teilhard de Chardin. Yeah, I, that's who I thought you were going to say because yeah. he's been he, mentioned on the podcast before by one of my guests and one of my other guests, we were talking about him and when I, because he obviously knows a lot about Pierre and I've read a little bit about him from my own research and I was like, it's a shame that he probably, yeah, he said some controversial things because he, he made some great contributions yeah. to science. and. He Helped research P. King Man, one yeah. of the the earliest known. It's funny the the identity in terms of what species P. King Man was is kind of a mystery because it was lost during World War II during the Japanese yeah. invasion of China. But he helped research that famous specimen. You know, his his research has been cited by popes like Benedict and John yeah. Paul II. But you know because of some of his views on eschatology yeah. and the end times and stuff, you know, I just don't think he's on that track. But I, I don't think he's he's somebody that Catholics should avoid checking yeah. out or checking out some of his work. I've not read some of his more metaphysical things yet, but he just seems like a very interesting character. Yeah. He was a Jesuit priest yeah. and yeah, worked as a paleoanthropologist. Yeah. He's when I was talking with my actually this podcast has already come out by this already by the time of this recording, but I was talking about this with my guest, Father Dennis Klein, and we talked about in emails and not on the podcast, but Pierre kind of seems like one of those things where he's made good contributions and questionable contributions, and if you read him, you should proceed with caution. Right. Especially from a Catholic perspective. Yeah, I would probably agree with that. Be informed when you read his stuff. But I think in terms of of the historical curiosity and yeah. knowing what some of well this the ideas that were kind of in the air at that time, he's a pretty interesting figure. And just because he had a pretty interesting life, he was yeah. also embroiled in the whole Piltdown Man fiasco, mm-hmm. in which several scientists in Great Britain were taken in by mm-hmm. fake fossils. And on hindsight, it's easy to judge these people. But I think what happened is, is that they were the fossils they were shown would seem pretty fake to us today. Paleontologists who are in the know would say, oh, there's totally something wrong here. But it fit their preconceived notions at the time of what their current pet theories about evolution, human evolution specifically were at the time. And it fit their preconceived notions. And that's the thing of the professors that I had always tried to stress on us 
challenge your pet theories, challenge your hypotheses, challenge your own ideas. Do not get caught in that space yeah. where you reject evidence because it doesn't fit your paradigm. Which you know? is, so I, I think the science has come a long way since those days. Which is such a good thing to point out because it's almost like, in a sense, the scientists of that time, it was kind of like a mirror of what happened with Galileo and his homies. Because Galileo ends up being vindicated in the end. Mm -hmm. He just, as we said, he shouldn't have offended his friend the Pope right? in doing so. But also, one of the ideas that gets talked about a lot on my podcast is the idea that, yes, it is absolutely okay to ask questions. God would want you to ask questions because the idea of just blindly following something just because that's what you've known, that's that's not love. That's that's blind obedience. And right. It's like slavery almost. You know, yeah, it's a and, kind of meant of intellectual yeah, slavery. Yeah. And God does not desire slavery for us. He died on the cross to literally set us free. And so he wants us to be able to choose him out of free will. And in order to do that, we have to ask questions to further understand the world around us and how God designed it to be. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And we're going to keep asking these questions. And now with, I will say, one good thing about the advancement of technology in recent decades yeah. is that we can now ask questions that we would never even think of asking before. I know my colleagues who study dinosaurs are now able to ask questions like, what color were they? Yeah. Were they had never thought to ask that kind of question because they thought, well, that's just impossible to know. Yeah. But now the microscopic study of fossilized dinosaur skin tissue, we can discover melanosomes, which are these microscopic packets of pigment that animals have in their skin. And, and to, to make educated guesses about what color certain dinosaurs were. I remember when I was a kid, every dinosaur book I ever read said, we will never know what color they were. <laughs> and now that's been completely overturned because of new technology. I was one of the things I did when I worked in the anatomy department at Stony Brook was that we were working with CT scanners where we would scan fossils. Specifically, we like to, to CT scan skulls because there's a lot yeah. of interesting anatomy in there. Oh, always. <laughs> and we would use computers to make very extremely detailed 3D models and to be able to like look inside brain cavities and look through different ducts where like veins and nerves would go through inside the skull. Yeah. There was a lot of interesting reasons where in the old days, they would have to cut fossils open to discover this stuff and damage the specimen. Today, this can all be done with really high resolution yeah. micro CT scanners. And it's just when 3D printers are being brought into the mix, it's just such an, an amazing time to be following this science because yeah. new, new species are being named all the time. I was afraid when I was a kid that by the time I grew up, every Every dinosaur that ever existed would have been found. <laughs> that is not the case. We are discovering all kinds of new species yeah. all the time. Oh my goodness. That just reminds me because physics and astronomy have kind of had that parallel world where in the late 1800s and maybe a little bit into the late nine or the early 1900s, physicists were like, oh, we have discovered all the physics that there is to know. We're just going to be refining things from here on out. And right. turns out through Einstein and the revolutionary quantum mechanics out there, they turned that notion on its head. And then also like on the astronomy side, you have. Yeah 
have yeah. people like Father Lamatra, who, along with Edwin Hubble, and they are like, oh, hey, the universe is expanding and just revolutionizing things with the concept of the Big Bang. And right, yeah. It's just, there's always new things to know. There was a period when, specifically in dinosaur science, that we like to call the dinosaur renaissance. And it was mm-hmm. around the, basically from in the 60s and 70s. And that's when people like Bacher and Jack Horner and yeah. Phil Curry and some of the others were re- bringing out their ideas of endothermic, active, intelligent dinosaurs. Yeah. And it rocked the field. Nowadays, it's it's just accepted. And the idea is that, the, that dinosaurs are the ancestors of modern birds. You know, this was one of, that's actually an older idea that came back into vogue at that time. Yeah. But then nowadays, it's almost like that Renaissance period that we like to refer to is over. And what's begun is an even new new frontiers being brought about by new technologies. I like I've heard it referred to as the dinosaur enlightenment because after, <laughs> you know, the the uh, the Renaissance, you have the enlightenment era. So and it, it really is the enlightenment because, again, we're we're discovering questions we didn't even know to ask yeah. before. And it's it's such one of the when I was thinking about studying this on the graduate level, one of the things I became interested in Mm -hmm. is how do they grow? Yeah. You know, what is the life cycle of a dinosaur, you know, through its ontogeny, you know, its growth from hatchling to juvenile, adolescent to adulthood, because a lot of them have very strange life cycles that are not at all like mammalian life cycles. They'll (laughs) go through these insane growth spurts. You know, the fact that you have dinosaurs that grow to be 10 times the size of the largest land mammal, you know, or you have dinosaurs like T-Rex, where we have a pretty good idea of its life cycle now. And the adolescent Tyrannosaurus Rex looks nothing like its fully adult counterpart. (laughs) I mean, it's vaguely T-Rex looking, but in terms of the details of its anatomy, there's a lot different there. So we can tell that they had different lifestyles at different points in their life cycle. And that was a topic that really interested me. And we're able to learn more about this now by studying their bones and their the way they grow and things like that and using computers to model these things and yeah it's it's just a fascinating time to be a dinosaur geek or a human (laughs) evolution nerd it's an amazing time it really is yeah you're absolutely right and it just kind of like when we first discussed the idea for this episode it just it gives me this almost childlike excitement for the future and yeah it's gonna be a fun time oh yeah i'll say this one last thing i remember there was a discovery when I was still working at the university, there was a dinosaur that discovered, and I'll I'll probably remember this moment to the day I die. It was a Chinese dinosaur. It has a Chinese name instead of the traditional Latin name. Yeah. It's called E-Chi-Y-I-Q-I. So that's how you spell it. But it is a dinosaur that had membranous wings like a pterodactyl. Now, here's the thing. There's a common misconception. People think that pterodactyls or pterosaurs are dinosaurs. They're not. They're actually a closely related group. And the only flying dinosaurs were feathered. So (laughs) it was thought that, okay, dinosaurs went with the feathered wing route, like Velociraptor and some of the... uh, Velociraptor couldn't fly fly, but some of his relatives could glide. And it's like, okay, so pterosaurs went with the membranous wing. And they found this dinosaur called Yichi, which has a feathery integument on its skin, but also has a leathery wing. And when I first saw the images, because a colleague came over to me and said, 
you need to come over and look at the computer right now. And he was showing the images. We were we were blown away. They're like, this, this creature is impossible. This creature shouldn't exist by all yeah. the contemporary theories. This creature should not exist. And it, even the anatomy of its membranous wing was completely bonkers. The membrane is supported by this odd spur that comes off its carpal, its, its wrist bones. It's just bizarre. And I'm like, it shattered. Paleontology internet exploded that day. <laughs> I, I will remember that is because every, all the, the previous ideas about dinosaur flight were turned on their head. Yeah. And it was, I'm like, this is how much we don't no, that's yeah. the exciting part. Yeah, that is just, that's so exciting. And honestly, just reminds me of how the astronomy internet exploded when the web pictures yeah. first came out. And honestly, I still to this day, I will have friends and family members be like, oh, what do you think about X JWST discovery? And I'm like, oh my goodness, you are more in touch than I am right now. <laughs> <laughs> no, I have the same thing. People will say to me, do you hear about that new dinosaur? And I'm what? what? <laughs> I have to go and look it up. <laughs> oh my goodness. It's great. I love it, man. But yeah. So we've been talking for, holy cow, like almost an hour and a half. What is life? <laughs> And that's, that's not even brutal. counting the, re the right. unrecorded discussion we had earlier. But to kind of bring things a bit more to a close, I really like to ask all of my guests this question. And that is, how in your life do you see science and faith intersecting or inspiring each other? Oh, I definitely think for me, it's my writing now. And it's funny because that, that was one of the other things I, I thought of being for a long time was a writer. And I'm just glad yeah. that I haven't had to let go of either of these passions for storytelling. Because like I said, when I was a kid, it was movies. Now <laughs> it's writing. Those two things of storytelling and science have always kind of stayed there. And that's something I'm doing with my Nicholas Steno project and what I hope to do in the future with some of my fiction. Because science being a a human endeavor is yeah. in inherently a story with characters, with protagonists, with <laughs> great quests in terms of discovering new knowledge and trying to forge new theories and new frontiers. And I just think it's such a cool thing. It's such a cool topic as a part of history, because again, I'm a history buff and history is story. Yeah. And especially the story of science as part of our Catholic heritage, too. Yeah. And that there's so many of these great figures, not just Steno, but so many others. You know, yeah. my confirmation saying is Albert the Great. I I mean, I did think about Albert the Great as being my confirmation saint, but I was a little too timid to choose him because conventionally, most women choose, you know, a woman female saint. saints, yeah. and most men choose male saints. And only in college did I learn that it's not frowned upon necessarily to choose opposite sex saint from who you are. Right. You're, you're just choosing a, a patron. Exactly. You know, like a personal patron and a friend in heaven. And I yeah. just think people need to know a lot more about these figures to know, especially today when there's such a divide between the culture at large and religion, and there's specifically Catholicism, and there's a lot of hostility to just yeah. know that not only is it not opposed to science in any way, but the modern empirical sciences grew out of a Catholic context. Yeah. You know, they grew out of the Middle Ages, which were 
the Middle Ages in Europe, it was a Catholic culture. Yeah. You know? And yes, they had sources before them in the Greco-Roman and the Islamic world, but yeah. they took those sources in new directions and made new discoveries, especially yeah. in the Middle Ages in terms of optics and some oh, of the yeah. other, the other Galileo things. Galileo did some pre-foundational things in optics and actually so did Leonardo da Vinci was right. did some of those things too. And like it just, that, that context, that ability to study the created world on its own without it being tied in as, as a god itself in a lot yeah. of earlier pagan cultures. How do you study something that's a god? Yeah. You know, that's why I think pantheism is almost totally inim inimical to that kind of science, because how do you study something empirically that's divine? But in any case, I just think that that history yeah. needs to be told again. That story needs to be told of the Catholic heritage of the empirical yeah. sciences. And I think it's an important story. And I just hope to do my little part in sharing it. Yeah, yeah, because the world needs saints. It needs Catholics in general. You know, heck, the word Catholic by itself, um, even without the context of the greater church, means... Universal. Universal, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it really gets into that just... There are so many places where we don't have to be either or. We can be both and and... Mm -hmm enjoy all these beautiful aspects of creation, no matter what our state in life is or heritage or insert whatever other thing you want. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And that's one, again, that to take it back to Steno again, that's what he didn't have to be either or he didn't need to make that choice in his life. He could be authentically Catholic and also, and the church never, ever condemned any of his science. Because it yeah. knew it was not a threat. He lived an authentically Catholic life as an authentic scientist and made great contributions. And I think there's tons of more untold stories. Oh, yeah. And I like only to. scratched the surface with my one episode where I talked about some of them. Mm. And I hope that we discover more of these stories. And obviously, as Catholics ourselves, we desire to be in heaven and to be in heaven is to be saints. Right. So Absolutely. Maybe one day when we have gone away from this earth and gone to heaven, maybe one day we will be those saints and those stories for future generations. Ah, that that would be incredible. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. I just I feel like I very much waxed poetic right there. <laughs> Oh my goodness. But yeah, it, I conversations like this remind me of why I love science and I love my Catholic faith. Yeah, absolutely. Couldn't agree more with that. It's This has been one of the... I do podcasts a lot now. That's part of my job. This has been one of the most fun that I've been on right in a long time i i knew when we talked about this i was like we're gonna have a really fun time yeah i i truly can't wait for listeners to listen to this i think they're gonna have a lot of fun yeah i hope so yeah so probably with that since we've been talking for a while we should probably give our listeners a break because we could probably chat for a long long time and then it would be like midnight by the time i get to my parents house yeah. but i think it yeah you said it best this has been one of the most fun conversations i I've had in a while and it's really been a pleasure having you on oh thanks so much madeline it, it was a pleasure really yeah and to be on. i enjoyed it yeah and i will have to as we just hinted at earlier i will have to put some of your stuff in the show notes so that if people are interested in learning more about what you do and what you write about they can go explore the things that you've written and will write in the future yeah absolutely i i will send you links to include all the articles i've mentioned yeah and also a 
link to my Substack where it's kind of my author page where yeah. that's kind of my one-stop shop. I do monthly updates showing all the podcasts I've been on and all the articles yeah. that I've written for that month. So it helps, you know, because people often ask, where can I see your writing? And as a freelance writer, it's all over the place. So <laughs> I like to have this kind of monthly update where it's like, here's everything I've been doing. So yeah, I will definitely send you that so that readers can check it out. Yeah. And I'm all about supporting fellow writers, fellow podcasters and fellow scientists in general. It's a pleasure to just be able to get to do this and just a complete blessing. Oh yeah, no. This has been really awesome. Thank you. Yeah. So to my listeners, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Thomas. And if you like this episode, stay tuned for more amazing content.